You can go ahead and turn, if you already have not, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. Uh, we continue this Lord's Day looking at Matthew's Gospel, uh, which we began looking at uh, over two years ago. And we are now in our last uh, three messages and looking at this Gospel. Uh, today we'll be looking further at the cross and the crucifixion, next week at the resurrection, and then we'll be looking at the Great Commission uh, as we conclude our study in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, as you turn there and as you think about the opportunity we have to uh, support international missions, uh, I also want to tell you more about what we are doing. And so tonight at 6 o'clock for our adult Bible study, uh, Pastor Nick and I are going to be sharing a little bit about what, was going, what we did in Gdansk as well as what we'll be doing in the future there uh, and opportunities to go back there to minister in that area. Um, so for our adult Bible study tonight, we'll be meeting down in the Family Life Center because as we've been mentioning, tonight we're doing something a little different. Uh, we're going to have our regular programming at 6, but then starting at 6.30, we're all going to meet down in the Family Life Center uh, for dessert. So we encourage you to bring some dessert with you to share with others. And uh, we're going to have our business meeting during that time in hopes that we might have some more people come uh, than we've had uh, in recent history to some of our business meetings. Uh, so that members meeting opportunity is a time for fellowship. Uh, tonight, we'll also be voting on some things. Uh, as you know, we're voting on our church budget for next year. We'll be doing that tonight, uh, as well as sharing the, the deacons that will be coming on and serving and voting to approve that list and uh, just praying for our membership in general. So if you'll make plans to be here tonight at 6, we'll meet in the Family Life Center for our adult Bible study to hear about Poland, and then all of us will come down there at 6.30 for that members meeting, and uh, we'll be praying. And one of the things we'll pray for will be the opportunity we have to share the gospel with the nations. Uh, Matthew chapter 27 is our text this morning, beginning in verse 45, reading through 61. And so let me read that portion of the text for us and then pray for our time in God's Word. This is what the Holy Scriptures say to us, uh, given by God to us this morning for our edification and encouragement in our teaching. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Allah, Allah, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. 
Let's pray for our time in God's Word this morning. Sovereign God, we pray as we continue to look to Your Word and are at this all-important section of the Scripture that You would help us to understand the cross. And there is much that we will never fully comprehend. There is much the text does not share. But Lord, for, for what we see here, for what it does say, Lord, for what you communicate to us through it, help us to understand it, help us to respond to it. And Father, we do pray this Lord's Day that you would help us to, to preach the message of the cross to people all over the world, to those who have never heard the name of Jesus. And Lord, perhaps to those who have heard the name of Jesus over and over again and yet... They have never heard someone explain the gospel to them. Perhaps some here in our own community. Burden us, Father, this morning to take the message of hope and light that comes with the gospel. And we pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at videos and we think about things like missions, it reminds us of the Great Commission, the commission that we'll be looking at in the text in just a few weeks, the commission to, to go and make disciples. And we know that discipleship begins with proclaiming the gospel to lost people. And yet, time and time again, as I've read studies and books and watched training in the area of evangelism, it seems there's this, this 10% number that's always thrown out that, that less than 10% of professing Christians actually share the gospel with others. And I find in my own life a struggle at times to, to initiate those conversations. And it seems as I talk to you and others that, that, that we all seem to have some anxiety at times about sharing the gospel with other people. I fear that we've made it into something it shouldn't be, that we think that somehow we need a, a PhD in evangelism to sit down and share the gospel with someone else. And so I want to remind you this morning of the words of one who was faithful to share the gospel, who we look at as sort of a hero in this area, and yet I want to remind you of the nervousness and the reality of his life. It's the Apostle Paul who writes this in 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's who we are in the company with as we look to God's Word today. Not those who come with lofty words of wisdom or compelling speeches, but those who come in fear and trembling. But as Paul says here, decided to know nothing other than Jesus and Him crucified. That is the message that we preach. And that is the message we're going to look to even further in the text today as we think through the, the, the need we have to step out and tell others about Christ. We need to help them understand the cross. And we need to understand that, that many people don't understand it. Uh, many people have tried to, to, to explain or, or offer other explanations to it, and yet the text is clear when it tells us what happens on the cross. And, and that's what we're going to look at today as we look at how some people respond to it and ultimately how we are called to respond to it and how we are called to tell others about it. And the first thing we'll look at as we walk through this text is this, that, that some see the, the cross as a spectacle. And there are those who 
will acknowledge the crucifixion of Jesus, but they, they merely look at it as some sort of event, some sort of spectacle. They, they deny the miraculous nature of it, uh, but they'll at least acknowledge that something happened there. And when we look to the text, we see people there who are looking at it uh, not as a display of the power of God, but as some sort of spectacle of man. And it was something that obviously was a spectacle to them because of the, the miraculous nature of it, the supernatural nature. And they try to explain their way around it, and people today try to explain their way around it, but I want to walk through and point out some of these things to you. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel particularly, he, he highlights the miraculous nature of the cross. Uh, all the Gospel writers will mention miraculous events that happen. Matthew mentions more of them, and so there's, there's five that we're going to look at today. Uh, the first one's in this first point that I want to share with you, and that point, or that, that miracle is this. We see it in verse 45 that, that darkness covers the land between the sixth hour and the ninth hour. Uh, the way of counting time here began essentially in the morning at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour would be noon, the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. This would not be a, a normal time of day for the sky to grow dark. And yet there are some that as they look back on this historically, will say, well, you know, if you study the charts, perhaps there was some type of solar eclipse during that time. And yet, in thousands of years of study, we know that solar eclipse only lasts for a few minutes. Perhaps the longest ever recorded is less than, than 10 minutes. And yet here we have an event that happens for, for three hours. And it's significant that this happens. It's significant that we understand this wasn't just some spectacle. It's significant that we see the spiritual nature of it. And these hours were silent. In fact, in the text, it really doesn't tell us anything other than they were silent. But we can infer that it was during this time that Christ bore the wrath of God for sin. And the only way that that can be described in the text is darkness. The only way that can be described is in this time of complete and utter darkness. When we see darkness at other places in the Bible. In fact, as you look to Exodus chapter 10, you find there during a time when Moses was seeking to take the people out of slavery in Egypt, God brings plagues. And if you remember, the, the ninth plague that we see there was darkness. Darkness covered the land. The only place that it was light, the text tells us in Exodus 10, was where the Israelites were gathered. Uh, there again, I think God is, is showing us something about the, the light. We are to be in the darkness. The Israelites are the only place that was lit in the midst of darkness. They were to be a light to the nations. We are to be a light to the nations. But, but we see complete and utter darkness there. And what was that? It was judgment. Uh, it was an indication of God's wrath to come because as you remember, that was the ninth plague. The tenth plague was the life of the firstborn was taken from each household. All households except for those that had the blood sprinkled over the doorpost. And so those doors were passed over. And so the, the darkness essentially was a prequel, was, was right before the judgment that would come from God on man. Here we see darkness again. Here we see judgment again. As God is judging not Christ, but He is releasing the wrath that is deserved for all but Christ because of our sin. Here as well we see a Passover and that it is not the crowds there 
or the nations at that time that suffer the wrath of God. It, they, they are passed over in essence. Christ is the one who suffers. For those outside of Christ, one day they will suffer too. But, but here we see a Passover sacrifice offered up with Christ on the cross. And that darkness points us towards that. It's that darkness during which we see that, that Jesus experiences what we can't fully comprehend, what it must have been for one who is part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one who experienced perfect fellowship with God to, to, to feel a sense of isolation on the cross from His Father to the point that He would proclaim in verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus here is quoting the first verse of the second, uh, 22nd Psalm. The 22nd Psalm is a psalm of David. It's a psalm of great despair as David talks about being surrounded by his enemies, as David talks about his enemies mocking him. He he is recounting something that's happening to him, and yet through the Spirit, uh, this is a messianic psalm, meaning that God is using this to, to, to foretell events that will come. And so there's other things in that text that perhaps aren't fully happening to David at the time, uh, but they are messianic. They're speaking of... Christ. For example, in Psalm 22, it mentions the piercing of hands and feet. It mentions the dividing of garments by casting lots, events that we don't necessarily see happening to David particularly in his life, but we are going to see them here on the cross. And so Jesus is identifying with that Messianic Psalm, Psalm 22, when he says this first verse from it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he's not just identifying with it, he's experiencing it. Uh, Here, he is experiencing complete and utter isolation from the Father as he bears the wrath of God for our sin. Again, we can't fully comprehend it, but just think for a moment. The same Christ who said in Matthew 11, 27, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. There's this unique relationship described in the Scripture between Father, Son, and Spirit that that is oneness, and, and we can't fully and completely grasp it, and yet it's in this moment that Jesus feels a sense of isolation. And yet, He bore this so that you and I wouldn't have to. See, there are moments in our life when we feel isolated. There are moments in death. Perhaps we lose someone we love and we feel a sense of of isolation, a sense of separation, a sense of grief overwhelms us. Times of despair, where something happens in our life, the loss of a relationship or a job or a a financial crisis where we feel a sense of, of isolation, of abandonment, of nobody else understands what I'm going through right now. Times of depression, where for some there's just a complete and total loss of light in their life and, and maybe their job's okay and their family's okay and they can't describe it in any other way, but they're just utterly and completely depressed to the point of feeling like no, no one understands. And yet here we have a picture of one who truly experienced isolation as he bore the wrath of God so that in our moments of facing death or despair or depression, we might cry out to the one who does not leave us. The one who says, come to me if you're weary and I'll give you rest. 
The one that says to take his yoke on to, to, to take his yoke and put it on us, and that his his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The one who truly knows what it is to be isolated and to feel a sense of abandonment is the one who says to us this Lord's Day, come to him because he can give us comfort. See, what happens on the cross is no mere spectacle. What happens on the cross is miraculous. What happens on the cross is the opportunity here for us to come into fellowship with God through Christ so that that we never need to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because we have been given the gift of the gospel and now we can have fellowship with God. And even when there is death or despair or depression, we can truly rest in Him. And yet there are some who just... Ignore all that. They just see this as a spectacle, including some in the text we see today, because after hearing him make this cry, rather than associating this with a messianic psalm and repenting and saying he truly is the Son of God, we see in the text that some of them say, well, this man is calling Elijah. Now, when they hear him say, Eli, Eli, they, they think he is trying to call out Elijah's name. Jewish tradition taught that uh, Elijah, who we know from the Scripture, was one who, was, who never died, who was taken up to God in a whirlwind. Uh, Jewish tradition taught that, that, that he would return, one, during a messianic time, that he would usher in the Messiah. And also, some believe that, that Elijah would come to those who were truly righteous in their moments of despair. And so here they see Jesus on the cross who, who proclaims to be righteous and he's calling out what they think is Elijah's name. And so to them, this is, this is sort of a spectacle in front of them and, and they want to see if it's going to happen. They want to see if Elijah's going to show up to the point that when one goes to take sour wine to give it to him, probably not in a sense to relieve him, maybe to further mock him, whatever the case, when they, when they go to do that, the others say, no, 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 stop. We don't want to interrupt what's going on here. We want to see if Elijah's really going to show up. Uh, this to them is like some side of, sort of carnival sideshow that they're looking at. And sadly, there are those who look at the cross is that today. Some sort of event, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, but but it's just a a spectacle. And yet we see here such deep, spiritual, significant truth as they're sitting there waiting for Elijah. In verse 50, Jesus cries out with a loud voice and it says in the text that He yields up His Spirit. It's a reminder that Christ is in complete control here. Imagine that for a moment. He's in control here. He, he yields up his spirit. It's not taken from him. He gives it up. Even in this moment where it seems that he feels isolated in the text, he still knows the mission of God, that it, he must die for the sins of man. And, and after bearing the wrath that we deserve, the text tells us that he yields up his spirit and yet there's so many who don't see that. In addition to that, there's, there's others who completely deny it. And that's the second thing I've put in your notes. That others deny that the cross was supernatural at all. They, they don't recognize the miraculous nature of this. And yet we see miraculous all over this text. And we have all these theories that people say today. Ways that they try to explain the cross uh, it couldn't have been supernatural, they believe, and so there must be some other explanation to it. One popular theory in the past has been the, the swoon theory. 
Uh, the swoon theory basically suggests that, that Christ uh, was in such uh, anguish on the cross that he merely passed out. And after passing out, they, they took him off the cross thinking he was dead, and they, they put him in the tomb, and then uh, he woke up. Uh, he just swooned. He just fell asleep. And yet, when we look historically at what takes place in crucifixion, we know that this is not a historical possibility, that crucifixion killed, that even if one endured all that and somehow they thought he was dead, and even after his side being pierced, he survived that, and there's no way he could then escape a tomb with a large boulder rolled in front of it. And even if he did, then you think of the resurrection appearances of Christ where he appears in resurrected form. Now that theory doesn't hold up to many. But there's others who try to escape the supernatural nature. They say that, well, perhaps as we look towards the resurrection, perhaps the body of Jesus was just stolen. The the disciples went and they, they took the body and that's why it wasn't there. But again... That comes up short when you have the resurrection accounts. It comes up short when you have the accounts of those who wanted to ensure that didn't take place. And the guards they placed there at the tomb for that very reason. They were scared the disciples or someone might steal the body. And yet there are still some who try to ignore the supernatural nature of this and say that uh, there was a great hallucination. That everyone at once had a, a hallucination and they all hallucinated the same. And they all thought that they saw the resurrected Christ at times and yet... And we see this doesn't hold up very well either when you try to think of the nature of not just one person seeing something that wasn't real, but so many seeing something that wasn't true. See, we can try all kinds of fascinating theories, but the reality is that this happened, and, and God attests that reality by showing us and by providing for us many miracles that took place at the time of the crucifixion. It says in verse 51, for example... The second miracle that we see in this passage this morning, that the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Uh, The the temple was so arranged that you had a a holy place where there was preparation, where sacrifices were prepared, and that you had the most holy place. The most holy place had, uh, had a separation, had a veil between it and the holy place. The holy place was then separated from the outside of the temple, and now you can only enter into, or the only time that the veil could be breached, that the most holy place could be entered was, was one time a year, and that was only by one person. It was by the high priest. And looking back at the history of the temple, uh, up until the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, that's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice Uh, on the mercy seat there of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, as you know from the Old Testament, uh, contained, among other things, uh, essentially the law, the Ten Commandments from God. It it represented the righteousness of God. It represented the law of God. It represented the holiness of God. And when this sacrifice was made and placed there on the mercy seat of the Ark, that that represented somehow an an atoning for sin. Uh, Man has breached the law. Now, we have not fulfilled the law. We have broken the law. We fall short of the law. And so it represented an an atoning for our sin that was then sprinkled there on the mercy seat. And that that practice then continued in that that one sacrifice being offered on the Day of Atonement each year where the the high priest could then go through that veil and go into the holy place, the most holy place. It essentially represented the presence of a holy God. And so what a significant event that that veil 
At the moment that Christ releases His Spirit, at the moment where He is now taken on the penalty for our sin, that curtain is torn, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. The indication there being clearly that God is the one tearing the veil. The indication being there that there's no longer a a separation that exists. Why? Because Christ has now died for the sins of man. That no longer is it just the high priest who on one day out of the year can go and offer one sacrifice. Now daily you and I can go before a holy God through Christ. Because this veil has been ripped into. It's also significant the timing of this that it happened at the ninth hour about 3 p.m. because that's the exact time that afternoon sacrifices would have been made in the temple. So this would have been an event that would have been witnessed by many of the priests in the temple that likely possibly led to the conversion of many of the priests that we see later in the scriptures who've come to faith in Christ. It's not just this. The text goes on to tell us about another miracle after that, the same verse, and the earth shook and the the rocks were split. It says that a a great earthquake takes place. Now, uh, some of you have experienced an earthquake. We live in a day and age where we have earthquakes all around our world. So some could say, well, this was not necessarily miraculous. It just kind of coincidentally happened, and yet we look at the timing and the placement of that, and, and we see this again. Uh, This is miraculous. This is God's presence shaking the earth. You think, for example, again, looking back at the Old Testament, we see there in Exodus 19, that the earth shaking at Mount Sinai as the Israelites were gathered and as Moses was about to go up to receive the law, the text tells us that, that the earth shook, that the people knew God is here. And now again, we see the earth shaking that the people might know that this was indeed the Son of God on the cross. You think about that comparison and that earth shaking in both events and we're reminded of what John says in his Gospel in chapter 1 verse 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That no longer do we need to make a sacrifice and sprinkle it on a symbol of the righteousness of God because a sacrifice has been made for us. Fourth miracle we see here and one that we don't know many details of is the the resurrection of the saints. The text tells us that the tombs were opened, that the bodies of many saints who have fallen asleep were raised. Uh, They came out of the tombs after Christ's resurrection. We don't know who they were other than it says they were saints. They could have been from many days of old. They could have been more recent. The text doesn't tell us. We don't know what happened to them after this. The text doesn't tell us if they went back into the tombs or if like Elijah, God just took them up to heaven. We don't know what they looked like. We don't know if they were, looked like they just came out of a tomb or if they were in their, their resurrected bodies when they came out. But what we know and what the text tells us is that they do go out and they do appear to many. And what we know from the text is this is essentially a a foretelling, a a foretaste of what will one day happen because the Scripture tells us that one day you and I will come out of the graves also. And the Scripture tells us that one day we, our bodies, will be resurrected also. The Scripture tells us there's 
When we're baptized, there's, there's an identification with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here is a foretelling, is a pointing towards the resurrection of Christ and what will one day be the resurrection of all those who are in Christ. Again, a miraculous event. We see miracles all over this text and yet there are so many who still want to deny them. And yet the conclusion we're left with as we walk through this is the last point I've put in your notes, that for each of us, the cross is the only way to salvation. There are some that will view it as a spectacle. There are others that will deny it's supernatural. But the reality of the Scripture is, it is the only way through which we might have salvation. And we see how some respond in that way, pointed towards that. Verse 54, the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake. They saw what had taken place. They witnessed many of these miraculous things. Perhaps they heard reports of what was taking place in the temple. And as these things are going on, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Imagine this for a moment. We've looked in recent weeks at some of the soldiers and their treatment of Christ and how they, they, they mocked Him as a king and how they, they dressed Him up as a king and how they, they beat Him and tortured Him and put Him on the cross. It is likely that these soldiers there who are now instructed to, to keep watch over His body, to make sure no one takes Him off that cross before it's time, that they were likely among those same people. Imagine... In the beginning of the day, they were mocking Him as King. And by the end of the day, they're bowing their knee to Him as King. And the Scripture doesn't tell us that this isn't a full confession. We don't know if they're fully converted at this point, but it says they're filled with awe and they say, truly this was indeed the Son of God. And we see that is the beginning of the confession that every one of us needs to make. That we believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, that He truly was the Son of God. God, that we confess that He is Lord. Romans 10 tells us that is what it means to be saved. And we see an indication of this in the text. We see as well the response of others. The text tells us about others who were among them, who followed them. I, I want to just mention one, verse 57. This rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who it tells us was a disciple of Jesus. The other gospel accounts tell us that he was part of the council uh, the Sanhedrin that we've looked at in recent weeks, that, that council who uh, declared Jesus to be crucified. Uh, the text tells us in the other Gospels that he was one who did not agree with that because he was a disciple of Jesus. He was looking for the coming of the kingdom. And from what we know about the Sanhedrin, it would be one thing for him not to agree with the decision. It would be a whole other thing for him to do what he does here. The indications are that Joseph's actions here probably cost him a great deal. Uh, for him to go and request the body of Jesus, think again of what's taking place here. Most of the disciples of Jesus have scattered. They have fled because they are fearful for their lives. They are fearful that they will be identified with Christ and then killed. And yet here is one who stands up and identifies himself with Jesus and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus so that he might take him to his own tomb that had been cut in the rock and place his body there to be buried. 
The suggestion here would be that Joseph represents one who was no longer fearful and who was willing to abandon everything to have been identified with Christ. What a picture that gives us of the cross. See, today, we're called to respond like Joseph. We're called to lead others to respond like the centurion and the other soldiers. We're called to take the message of the cross and, as Paul says, in our weakness and our fear and our trembling to go and to to share simply Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You don't have to have a Ph.D. in evangelism to do that. You can go nervous and scared and hands shaking. And during this Christmas season, while people on their radios are hearing songs about Christ and salvation and are surrounded by pictures of Christ being born in a manger, we can go and say, you know, that baby grew to be a man. And He went to the cross for our sin. And He is Lord and King. And He will return for those who are His. Do you know Him? We're all called to respond to the gospel. Do, do you know the gospel? Has anyone ever talked to you about the gospel? We're, we're called to abandon the notions of what people think and opinion, like Joseph here, who steps out of perhaps an area of comfort with the council, even though he had disagreed with them, he was still part of them, and says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'll take his body. You and I are called to step out in atmospheres and environments where perhaps it's uncomfortable and to say too, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? This Lord's Day, as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, as we think about that baby being born in the manger, and come let us adore Him, the Prince of Peace, consider what brought us peace that that prince grew to be a king, that he went to the cross for our sin, that not only are we called to respond to that personally, to repent and believe, but we're called to share that with others. So this Lord's Day, if you find yourself in a place where you've yet to repent, then the call this morning is believe. Believe indeed the miraculous nature we see here in Matthew 27. Christ indeed died for you. and Repent of your sin and place your faith in Him. The call for us is... Like that we see of Joseph here of Arimathea to to step out and to confess to others, I do believe Jesus is the Son of God and, and I follow Him and to invite others to follow Him as well. We're going to offer an opportunity for invitation and today as we do this, perhaps there are some who God's leading to confess Christ to come and join our church, but for many others of us, my prayer for you would be that you would pray by name for people in your life who don't know Christ as King. Maybe they've looked at the cross as some spectacle. Maybe they've tried to dance around the supernatural, but they need to confess Christ as King as well because there is no other way under heaven or on earth, the Scripture tells us, that we might be saved. It is only through Christ. And while God could write the gospel in the sky in every language today so that every man, woman, and child could see it and read it and understand it and experience it, He has chosen us as His means to take the gospel to lost and dying people. Consider, perhaps He's calling you this week to go and share with someone. 
And pray about that now as we go into this time of invitation. If you'd stand with us and let me pray for us as we conclude with the time of response. Father, we thank you for your gracious provision of your word in our lives to teach us, to instruct us. Lord, we also understand it serves to rebuke us and and we need that, Lord. We need correction. And Lord, for some of us, Lord, I confess for myself personally that that I fail so often in the area of evangelism, Lord. I, I fail so often in sharing the gospel with people that I encounter on a daily basis. And so, Father, I pray for myself, I pray for others here, Lord, that you would empower us through your Holy Spirit to preach Christ and Him crucified. Lord, I pray for those here today who perhaps even now they are seeing faces come through their minds of people they know who who don't know Christ. Lord, would you empower them with your Spirit to go and to tell them about Christ, to preach the cross, to preach Christ crucified. Lord, would you use us as a church, not just in our giving, but in our prayers and in our going to impact the world with the gospel. Lord, we pray for these things today. We pray as well for this time of invitation for any, Lord, that you might be leading to to join us in this task. Lord, any who you might be leading to, to be a member of this church, to confess Christ, to be baptized. Lord, we pray that you would empower them to be bold and to, to take those steps this morning. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen.